Hey, Mike. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting podcast host. <laughs> Interrupting podcast In this host. episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about scaling a software product, raising prices, when to consider CRM, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 427. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products, whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. Move. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. I just... That's awful. I know. It was really bad. So what's the word this week, sir? I'm going to need some Advil for that one. Well, I uh, got some exciting news to share with the listeners this week. So in the past, we talked about having some podcast sponsors on and uh, wanted to talk about one that kind of ranged with AppSumo very recently. And AppSumo is offering an all-expense paid trip to MicroConf this year. And it's not just to one or the other, it's to both. So we're running a contest in cooperation with them. It's going to be starting as the day that this podcast episode comes out. And you can apply to that. We'll link to it up in the show notes. You go over to the webpage, enter in your email address, and you'll be entered into that contest. And uh, there's ways you can get additional entries into the contest by sharing it on social media and getting other people to submit their email addresses in. So for each person who enters based on your promo code that you give them, then you will get an additional entry into the contest. So as I said, we'll link that up in the show notes. But I think this is a really awesome way for AppSumo to kind of help support the community and the podcast, but also to just like help bootstrapped entrepreneurs get to microconf and network with other entrepreneurs. And so is it one person that wins tickets to both or is it two separate giveaways? So it's one person who's going to win tickets to both and then they have a some money that they're setting aside to also help cover the travel costs for it. So they'll cover airfare and hotel then for folks within reason, right? I mean there's some cap on it. Yep. You can't fly first class from Australia or something, but <laughs> no, as nice as that might be. That's super cool, man. And so I'd imagine someone listening might think, I already bought my ticket to MicroConf, or I might buy my ticket you know, in the next week, but I'm going to hold off for, for this giveaway. What would you say to those folks? So that actually is covered. So if you have already purchased your ticket or you purchased one between now and the end of the contest, the contest is going to go until, I think, February 11th. It's basically four weeks from today's episode. And if you are selected as the winner, then you will be refunded whatever you've paid for your tickets so far. So if you bought one ticket or if you bought a ticket to both of them, then both of them would get refunded. And I would assume that the if you've already booked your airfare and stuff, there'd just be a reimbursement that's, that goes along with that. Sure. Super cool. So this is our first podcast sponsorship. Yeah, definitely. So just wanted to say thanks to the people over at AppSumo and we'll link it up in the show notes. You can go over there and enter into the contest and hopefully we'll see you in Vegas. Sounds good. On my end, Tiny Seed Applications open on January 18th. We announced that this week. Tiny Seed is, of course, the first startup accelerator designed for people who would traditionally bootstrap. And it's my, my next act after Drip. And uh, I've already been talking to, to some founders, you know, either who I know personally or who introduced themselves to me, but we're definitely uh, going to open the floodgates for about six weeks starting January 18th. So that should be uh, an interesting process. Tinyseed.com if you have questions about that, if you have an idea or, uh, you know, an app that's, that's already launched, we'd love to hear from you. 
That's cool. So you're going to do uh, applications for like six weeks, and then how long do you think it's going to take to go through those applications? You think it's going to be like a week or like five weeks? Well, I mean, I you know we'll start right away. I mean, this is my full time thing that I'm diving into. So the moment we start getting applications, I will start sifting through them. And so it won't be a full six week of applications, you know, that I'll have to go through at the end, or I say we'll have to go through because there's I'm not the the sole person making decisions. But yeah, I. I don't know. I think I probably need to, to think more about an exact time frame, but it's not as if we have to announce or, or even we don't have to offer everyone a spot the same day. This is not, you know, Y Combinator where they have, I don't know, classes of 150 or something. I mean, it'll be a small class of 10 to 15. And I envision it as like, hey, if you're fit, we want to invite you to be part of it. And then and then people accept or, you know, accept or don't. And then we kind of move on to the next one. So I think we'll be doing onesie twosies throughout that time. But I'd love to have everybody nailed down, certainly before microconf, which is ambitious because that's only two two and a half months away now. But it would just be, you know, be a nice milestone to hit. That's awesome. Anything else? Have you updated your Mac OS to whatever the latest one is called? But it has dark mode. I have not. <laughs> I've heard of that. Isn't there something like a? I think it was like a Mac app called Flex or something like that that also darkens your screen. Is it similar to that? It's different than that. I just looked and it's Mojave. It's 10.14.2. It's different than, was it Flex or Flux? It was Flux, right? Yeah, that's that must have been it. Yeah. Flux like would detect your time zone. And then as it got later into the evening, it would remove the blue light from your screen so that it would try not to affect your sleep. And that actually sounds, that would be a great name for a great function of dark mode. But dark mode is just a dark theme for the entire for the OS. So like, like the messages, you know, the iOS instant messenger thing, the text message app is like all dark. It's all grays and blacks and the sidebars and the top and the background are all dark. And it's interesting. I'm using it. And I think that I like it better. I mean, I'm, I'm used to, I grew up programming on a, on an Apple IIe, which was is black background and green text. And when I used to code all the time, I would flip my background you know, of my editor. Sometimes I'd go white, but more often than not, probably 70, 80% of the time, I would just have a black background all the time. That's that like, the, like Adam, the default background is a black with white text on it uh, because it's just easier on your eyes. So it's uh, so far so good. I'm only like two days into dark mode, but if you haven't checked it out. I'd recommend, you know, giving, giving it a whirl. I also imagine it would help folks with migraines. I know that some folks, the light from the screen, if you have a lot of white, it can it can give you migraines. And that was actually, we released night mode for uh, drip workflows has night mode. And that was because one of our designers gets migraines and he just decided to have this, essentially it's a dark, you know, it's a dark mode for the workflow builder. Interesting. Yeah, I've never really been a fan of those like inverted dark modes or, you know, the inverted theme colors and things like that. But I've never really tried it a whole lot either. So Maybe if I gave it a couple of days to settle in, I'd get used to it, but I don't know. That's the thing, yeah. It definitely takes getting used to, because if you've used a computer with a white background for 40, 50 years like you have. Ooh, you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you are older than me. I know I am. (laughs) Just going to point that out. Cool. So you ready to dive into some questions? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our first question is a voicemail. So voicemails always rise to the top of the stack. And I think actually our first two questions are voicemails today, but let's roll into this one. Hi, Rob and Mike. Uh, My name is Declan. I'm contacting you from Sligo in the northwest of Ireland. We're from a company called Campus Connect. 
we're avid listeners. Really enjoy the podcast, and you have a, an uncanny ability to cover stuff that we that's happening at the time. So keep up the good work. Campus Connect is a it's an app, a mobile app service for universities. What we do is we create an instance of the service for university recruitment team. They push it out to their incoming students. The students can it's an onboarding service, so the students can register. They can connect with their peers and they can connect with somebody on campus. We've, uh, we're three years trading. We've grown to approximately 12,000 MRR and things have been going reasonably well. Something, a question that we've had, I guess a, an issue that we've been having is, is really around scale. Although we've managed to get to this point, we've struggled to really build, build on this. Creating an in, a new instance for each university obviously is quite resource intensive. And we create, when we create each instance, there's often customization. They're looking for different fields, different branding, different types of things and so on. And obviously managing the services. The universities we work with, they're also using it for their students that are, that are going out, going abroad. Um, so it's really for incoming and outgoing students at the moment. We feel there's an opportunity to develop it into a universal platform and to move all our existing clients onto one central platform where we can connect them up. At the moment, it's quite siloed. And it's obviously difficult to scale. We've mentioned it. We've spoken to our clients about it. They're interested in the idea, but obviously the next steps are quite challenging. I'd love to get your, your guys' thoughts on it. What do you think? How you, you would approach it? And um, yeah, that'd be great. Keep up the good work. Thanks. So that's a tough question, huh, Mike? I mean, they, they've made it to 12K MRR, which is nothing to sneeze at but certainly a, a big challenge ahead of them. What, what are your thoughts on this? Do you get what he's saying? Like they do almost on-premise and they almost, for each instance, and then they even do some customizations to some of them, it sounds like, and they want to centralize and basically go with a, with a more true SaaS model, right? A centralized cloud-based solution, it sounds like. Yes, that was actually a part that I missed. It's, I didn't realize that they do on-premise for them. I thought that they hosted each individual version of it, and that was mainly because they do customizations to each of them in the platform itself doesn't really support customizations or like a multi-tenant model, so to speak. So I wasn't sure whether that was the direction that they wanted to go, or maybe you have a little insight on specifics there. Like, did I miss something? You know, I just listened back to his piece and all he said is they create a new instance for each one. So I think you're right. And that it's not on premise. It is hosted on, on Campus Connect's servers. Let's go with that assumption, but that they have they copy a new whole instance of it, make some customizations, probably has independent databases, I'd imagine, for each one. So there's the multi-tenancy thing, right, that they'll have to solve if they haven't built that in already, which is just the ability to host multiple customers in a single database. That's a solved problem, right? I mean, that's pretty much plug and chug. There's not much risk with that, I'll say, in terms of implementation. But there obviously are some other things that I think are going to be more difficult than just making it multi-tenant. Yeah. Well, I mean, taking an application from single tenant to multi tenant in and of itself is kind of a pain in the neck. But like that is, it's a hard problem, but it's, you know, I would say generally solved. Like there's a lot of guidance out there that you could find fairly easily that would tell you the things to look out for and the things to do in that case. I think that from a scalability standpoint, I, I don't know as you'd want to go towards a model where it is completely multi tenant with everybody all in one instance. And part of that is just one for scalability, because there's going to be times where certain schools are ramping up and directing a lot of people to the site. And then there's other times where it's going to be slow and hopefully they won't all overlap. And if they did, you wouldn't want everybody all on one instance of it so that you could kind of slice it across. So let's say maybe you have like 10 instances of it and you have, you know, 
10 customers on each, for example. That's a lot easier to manage than 100 different instances of it. And that's probably the way that I would go in that particular case, just to at least allow you uh, a little bit more flexibility in terms of the redundancy of the whole system. I want to break in right there, just because I, I think this is an interesting topic. See, I wouldn't do that. Oh, really? Yeah, because to me, that's premature sharding, right? So sharding is where you can shard across single tables or database instances, or there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But what you're talking about is basically putting customers 1 through 10 on this database and customers 11 through 20 on this database. And long, long, long term, like if you're Facebook or if you scale, there was a certain point where we were considering sharding drip because we hit scale. But that was way, way down the line. And I think the added complexity of trying to manage that infrastructure, unless these are really high intensity, a lot of computing power, where you do think you're going to need to separate them, unless you think that's going to be the case and that you're going to need to do that, I would I, I consider that a premature optimization. Yeah, I I see what you're saying in terms of like the, the performance aspect of it. I'm looking at it more from like a durability standpoint. Like you don't want having to reboot one server, for example. And I don't know anything about the, the backend infrastructure and how they do that stuff today. But you don't want to have to like reboot every single customer all at the same time if there's a, a problem with one particular customer. And that's more it than anything else. I mean, the, the performance, I think, comes into it to some extent. But from my standpoint, like I would be a little concerned about having everything all on one system where if you don't have like a like a automatic failover or something like that, that would probably be an issue at some point just because of the number of people that could be hitting that site. Yeah. Again, I think that that's solvable in a different way. You know, you basically have your your main database that everyone's on. You have a hot swap backup that's sitting there constantly replicating, and then you have redundancy in every other server up the chain. So if you have a queue server, then you have two of them. If you have Redis, you have two of them. If you have, you know, again, this is just this is architecture we we did a drip to make it redundant. So we could reboot any server, and we had I don't even remember how many front end. By the time I left Drip, we had 20 or 30 front-end you know, web servers and 10, 15 API servers just, just accepting requests and then down and down and down. And so any of them could be recycled at any time and not affect anyone. The only thing that would actually take the site, you know, the system down, so to speak, and even then we would still, I believe we would still queue up incoming requests was um, the database, right? Because that's the one, because it's, it's write and it's not read. And we even had a bunch of reads move to a separate database that would stay up for that. But anyways, that's just an architecture thing. And I don't, sharding is one way to handle that. And I just don't know, I don't know how relevant that is here. Yeah, what I was thinking about was like, how would you migrate people to have them like on a multi-tenant server and essentially what you're doing is you're taking the machines and you're saying okay well let's take these take customer one and customer two and put them on the same server so you're going to have to do some sort of a migration probably for both of them because you're going to want to spin up a, a a new instance of the database for example just so that it's it's clean you don't have to worry about any additional cruft that's in there and maybe that maybe even again like that could be a mistake based on you know how complex the database is or how easy it is to to move that stuff onto a new server because if you're just adding tables and stuff to help support multi-tenant then maybe you just start with one of them and you move like the second customer's data onto the first customer's database but it depends on what the hardware there is too so maybe you just take the first customer's database and put it onto a brand new database server and you start with that but at some point you may need to start making decisions about how you're going to manage that how you're going to be adding more customers data onto that database server and is it a migration are you you like dumping the data out and then doing a full import like how are you going to 
manage that replication process to get them started? And how far do you go with it? As I said, like maybe you do shard the database. Maybe you do have several instances. I don't know that, and I don't think that they're going to know that either until they get there. Yeah, when I bought Hittail, it had two shards, and it had two separate databases. Yeah, I believe it was either two separate, I think it was two completely separate database instances on the same SQL server. And I had to merge them or I didn't have to, but I wanted to because it did not, it was way complex. Keeping things in sync, it sucked. And I merged them and I had to do some gymnastics because primary keys, some of them had the same primary key. So I had to update primary keys, which meant I have to update them all over the place. But again, that migration itself is just something you need to think through, be meticulous about, and do it. There is risk there, but it's technical risk. And if you get someone smart who knows what they're doing and you plan it out, that will work. The thing that I'm much more concerned about, well, hey, let me say off the off the bat, if Declan can make this happen and turn it into more of a centralized multi-tenant SaaS, I absolutely think that's the way to go. I think that's how they scale this business long-term because having these separate instances for each customer is just going to get hard. It's going to be a lot to manage. It's just, it's a lot of overhead. It's server costs. There's a bunch of labor that's going to go with it. And I think long-term, that's not how I would prefer to do it. So I would, I do think that them trying to centralize is a good move. I think the hardest part of this is going to be talking to all of the universities, getting them all on board with it and figuring out which customizations that they allow or disallow. And it's the the wild card, I think, is going to be the customers who have potentially extensive customizations that you may or may not, you know, import into the centralized version of the app. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that I would think would be a huge thing is the like data protection and privacy and making sure that you're separating the data between them, because I don't know for sure how much of the stuff is installed at the customer site versus how much they're hosting in their instances like Are there things that the customer really can customize on the front end or do they give them virtual machine that they install in their environment and then direct people to there with some of the customizations on? I don't I don't know how that is really set up, but like I know that they're they're probably going to be concerned about how how do we know that if we're migrating the data out of our environment into yours, how do we know it's secure? How do we know that it's not going to get go back and forth between other customers? How do we know that if you get hacked, we're not going to. Uh, suffer some major loss or something like that. Yeah, I agree. I think the hard part is that doing it retroactively means you could screw things up because again, that is a solved problem. There are a lot of, you know, how many thousands of SaaS apps have exactly the same issue of keeping data separate and they do it. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that having it separate is the issue. I think that convincing them that they've they've already purchased and, and bought into one model of having it deployed and then changing how that is done, that's the issue. Sure. For the IT department, they may need to go through like some infrastructure review or through a risk analysis or something like that. And they may, some of them may say no. Right. No, and that that makes sense. And that that's, I think, going to be the challenge here more than anything. It's, it's a big undertaking, but I would encourage them to to at least evaluate how many person hours and how difficult it will actually be because I feel like, do you, do you agree that this is probably the right choice for them? Like if, well, I, I guess the better question is, we don't have all the details, but if you were in their shoes based on what we know about their business, would you try to centralize to a multi-tenant scenario? Assuming that they are deploying a completely new infrastructure for each customer, I would absolutely centralize it. Yeah, 
just because the management of all that stuff is so challenging and expensive. Right. Well, I mean, and just having the different instances themselves, like you want to centralize it as much as you can, but with an obvious eye towards, you know, the performance and downtime and stuff like that. But again, like it's also something you're going to want to take slow. You're not going to want to dump everybody all onto a new set of servers all at once or even like three or four. Like you want to start with two and that's it. And then slowly consolidate them over time. You know, one other thing that occurred to me is I think this will be a cost savings for Campus Connect. And so it would be quite a coup if they could keep their prices the same and and consolidate because I do think that their costs for providing the service will be less. But they will also have the leeway with some of them to offer discounts if needed, right? Because I'd imagine, again, that just their cost to provide the service will be cheaper if they have 10 or 20 people on the same, 10 or 20 of these universities on the same infrastructure. So I think that's another added benefit to this. I'm sure Declan's thought of all this, but it's just, it's kind of a fun thought experiment to, to think through. Our next question is another voicemail, and it's about how to raise your prices when you have a lack of control. Hey guys, I'm Ben, and the founder of Code49 from Germany, selling apps in the Atlassian marketplace. Thanks for your great episode about Charge More. We'd also love to charge more, and who wouldn't? But we're not sure how to proceed. We can only raise prices for everyone at once, and our existing customers only get exposed to the new prices after 30 to 60 days. On top of that, we can only change prices every 30 days and rarely get any feedback why a customer cancels our subscription. So the question is, how would you raise prices in this scenario? Which metrics would you measure to determine if the raised prices lead to more revenue. Thanks for your help. I feel like this is a really tough spot because if you can only raise prices for everyone all at once and you're not going to get any sort of results for 30 days, and that, that kind of sucks. If you don't have direct access to the customers, that makes it harder to do something like this. I wonder if there's a way to publish it as a new app inside of the app Atlassian marketplace and see if there's a way that you could test that with new customers instead of your existing ones. And then you kind of grandfather the existing customers into your existing pricing. But I don't know how amenable Atlassian would be to having two apps that are in there that are basically the same kind of thing. The other thing you could do is you can talk to them and say, how would they go about this? Because it seems like it would feel to me like you can't possibly be the only company that has run into this particular problem, what does Atlassian have to say about it? That's exactly what I would do is ask them. I mean, this is a crazy limitation. This reminds me of, you know, Apple App Store stuff, right? It's this is where being in the app stores cuts both ways, being in the, you know, the Envato marketplace or the whatever, the Google Play Store. It's like it gives you distribution. It's easy distribution. It's a nice stair step. But I would never build like my full-time, you know, business on these ecosystems, because of these limitations, they're just so painful. You can't split test. You can't, you don't get your customer's email addresses. You don't get, you know, there's all these limitations. So I don't know that I have a silver bullet aside from talking to Atlassian. I I think his question of how would you raise prices in this scenario? Very, very carefully. You know, I would probably inch them up 10% and just see what happens. Do you get, but the metrics I'd look at is, are you getting less new customers in that, you know, seven or 30 day span? Did you churn higher than the previous seven or 30 days? I mean, it's very, it's a very blunt instrument. It's not a true uh, split test, poor man split test. I've, you know, I've heard this called, but yeah, I don't really see another easy way around it when you don't, you just don't have the control of your distribution. 
So thanks for the question, Ben. Hope our thoughts were helpful. Our next question is from Rohit Shetty. He asks, at what stage of a bootstrapped company should one consider using a CRM? I have a desktop app. It's not SaaS. It's for the data networking industry. It's cross-platform with binaries for Windows, Mac, and various Linux distributions. I use Gumroad for e-commerce, MailChimp for email, Google Forms for surveys. Email support and follow-up is using Gmail with stars or snoozing to remind me to follow up. All this means the customer data is quite fragmented and spread around. Wondering if having a CRM to bring all this data together would be useful, or is it the organizational freak in me just wanting to have it, or is it just the organizational freak in me just wanting to have everything together and it's not really going to help me grow my product? If you think a CRM is useful in this situation, could you suggest some? My average monthly revenue is around $1,200 and has been at that level for more than a year now, despite my attempts to grow it. This is a nights and weekends project. Thanks, Rohit. What do you think, Mike? I don't think CRM is is what he needs. Do you? No, I don't think so either. I mean, it sounds like if you were having trouble with lots of customers falling through the cracks and support issues because people feel like they're not being paid attention to or their needs aren't met or you're losing sales opportunities because you forget to you know follow up with them or check in with them or send them invoices and stuff like that, then I would say yes. But it doesn't sound to me like that's the case. It sounds to me like the data is just in a bunch of different places and it's kind of annoying that you don't have a centralized location for it because the it doesn't seem to me like the MRR really justifies that as like the top problem that you have. That's, I would agree to that. Also, CRM is really more for moving people through a process. It's like sales-based. It's, I don't think of it as a repository for a software company like you. To be honest, we either used our own database. You know, if I was running a SaaS app, it would be the own, you know, the, the multi-tenant database houses the, the data that you need. I guess not. A, that's aside from email automation and Google Forms and stuff, but it would house all the financial stuff. Or I, I used to and still do use Drip as a central repository for a lot of data. And so I would think about whether or not you want to pipe everything into MailChimp as custom fields since you use it, you know, use MailChimp for that purpose. Or if you want to try to get everything into segment, you could pipe data via Zapier and stuff. But all that said, I don't see what having this all in one place is really going to do for you. Like, I just don't know how that grows your business. So I'm with Mike and at $1,200 monthly revenue, I think you have a lot bigger fish to fry in terms of either keeping more customers, finding new ones, growing your top of funnel, whatever. I would put the time into that instead of trying to consolidate what data you have. Because this is every every business is like this. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. Like we used to use Stripe for, you know, for charging for Drip and we used Drip for the email automation. And we did use Google Forms or Typeform for some surveys. And we used Help Scout and later Zendesk for support. And so, yeah, everything, stuff was, you know, fragmented, I'll say, but it's just the nature of the beast. And I think, I think take a deep breath and just, just do the best you can and focus on growing your top line. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Wild Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.